Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Doug Chadwick on Four-Fifths a Grizzly. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now search through past shows by episode number, author's last name, book title, or sort by category. For instance, select the science and medicine or humor category for episode number 111, with Erica Engelhaupt on Gory Details. This is Erica Engelhaupt, author of Gory Details, Adventures from the Dark Side of Science, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Douglas Chadwick is a wildlife biologist, journalist, and best-selling author. His new book is titled Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that might just save us all. Doug, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you. It's springtime in Montana, and uh, it's pretty hard to be anything but optimistic right now. You've been a lot of places on this planet. I'm assuming a lot of that has been spent in the springtime as well. Is there any place uh, on this planet that's more beautiful than Montana in the spring? <laughs> um, there are places that are as beautiful as Montana in the spring, yes. But... Um, Look, I live in a stable, well, some people would argue with this, but I live in a stable democracy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I'm not fearing for uh, what I'm going to say to you, that I I may be in trouble with uh, authorities. Um, This is a great place to be. I'm 30 miles, 40 miles from the Canadian border, and the beauty runs right up the Rockies all the way up to the Yukon. So... um, it's a it's a great part of the world, and we do have one of the few fully intact ecosystems left in the Rockies. It's so vast, and so much of it is public land that every plant and every animal that is native and belongs here is still here, and most of them are still doing quite well. Is that just because humans have not overpopulated Montana yet? That and the foresight of some of our earlier generations in setting aside parks, preserves, and public lands. When I lived in Oregon for a couple of years, that was something that really caught me by surprise moving from Texas is just the steps that they took to try and make sure nature remains as natural as humanly possible. I respected the heck out of Oregon for that. Yeah, and... What we're learning here and around the world uh, is earlier generations have, you know, deserve all kinds of credit uh, and our respect for having done this, having set aside preserves, parks, other other uh, segments of nature, so we can understand how these systems work, and of course, just enjoy the the gift of of all the other life on the planet. But what we're realizing in place after place is that these reserves are becoming islands on land. Another Look, most extinctions in the world have happened on oceanic islands, about 80% of the known extinctions since 1500. Um, and that's because small populations are vulnerable and 
isolated populations on an island can't move to adjust to changing conditions, uh, disasters, hurricanes, epidemics, whatever happens, sea level rise. Um, and, and what we're seeing is this model sort of applying more and more to the mainland as people overwhelm the surface of the planet. And the human footprint now extends across 83% of the ice-free portions of the globe. And when I was studying how to, well, I was studying biology and how to practice conservation, there were fewer than half as many people on the planet. And when I was born, there were about a third as many people on the planet. So it's overwhelming. And we've got eight, almost eight billion of us. Well, I think you point out in this book that between 1970 and 2012, the human population doubled. What happened to Earth's wild animals during that 40 plus year stretch? They fell by 60%. And the most recent count is that they fell by 70%. Now, this is not number of species. This is absolute, just total number of big animals. And the declines have been startling. Of, of every 10 that were around when I uh, in 1970, there are three left today. So this is, you know, there's a lot of arguments over, uh, I don't know, are, are environmentalists overstating the problem? Are they crying that the sky is falling and so on and so forth? And it's just a distracting argument. The facts are it's pretty rough out there. In fact, it's, it's pretty terrifying. So, Was there a similar demise for plants over that four-plus decades? Yes. The number of plants that are in, uh, imperiled in one way or another is similarly high. And there's also what they call the insect apocalypse, uh, which is we, we there's so many of these smaller animals that we have, and they, they don't get our attention the way the big the big, sexy, charismatic, you know, the elephants and pandas and gorillas and so on. But once we get around to counting them, we find declines of upwards of three quarters in some areas. That's really scary because that's the base of many food chains. So, but look, we're starting off on, let's just say it's, <laughs> it's really serious out there, right? In 12,000 BC, uh, the human population, Homo sapiens had already been around for about 320, 30,000 years. Uh, and it was 12,000 BC when we f first topped a million. And 1800, we finally topped a billion. And now we've got 8 billion. So I, I don't think we've quite absorbed the the volume, the impact of, of this shift in, in humans monopolizing the available land, water, and so on. We're terraforming the planet. You know, we talk about terraforming Mars or terraforming some other place to make it habitable. We're kind of doing it in the opposite direction with planet Earth, We're changing the atmosphere, changing the quality of the seas, changing the land. So... Um, let's just let's just agree it's tough out there and then talk about what's going to be required to kind of change the momentum. 
Well, speaking of, you call for humans to thoroughly reset our relationship with the rest of the living world. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't, I don't like to um, play the blame game, I guess you'd call it. I mean, there's a you know, party who wants to uh, scold people, <laughs> you know, to, uh, work on their guilt, uh, whatever it takes to get their attention and say, look, we got to do something different. Because <clears throat> everything humans have been doing obviously has been very successful for us. Um, and, and so we have these tremendous numbers. We, uh, that and the changes in technology that have happened have just been, have, have been massive and it worked. Um, the problem is what worked when we numbered half this many or a 10th this many doesn't necessarily work now. And the figure I keep coming up with just because it really startled me was the prediction is that the total weight of plastic in the world in, in the seas will outweigh the fish in the oceans by 2050. So what are we arguing over? You know, like, gee, is it, um, should we do something or shouldn't we? Well, of course. Um, so usually the next question is what? And it comes down to, in many cases, a long list of let's change this, let's make this regulation, let's, let's come up with a new law. And, you know, all, all that's needed, along with a lot of international cooperation. But what hasn't changed is the way we think about ourselves in relation to nature. And that's why I wrote this book, to try to present what science is telling us about our relation with nature, just the facts of it. And it turns out, um, well, it turns out nature is embedded within us. We are natural. We respond to nature and we respond to the absence of it. And I, my goal was to simply present a lot of facts and say, think about it. I don't have the solutions although I presented some examples of, of uh, conservation projects that really work on a global scale. Um, but I, I'm very hopeful. And, and after all this disaster talk, that might sound a bit odd, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, I think these, these things I want to talk about don't diminish humans. They don't restrict us. They open up opportunities and they make us greater than we think we are. And we're already pretty good at thinking we're great. Uh, <laughs> we have a pretty inflated view of ourselves to start with, but there's much more to us and it's all natural. Well, and just to back up what you're saying right now, you certainly do sound the alarm with some of the shocking statistics and figures and just some of what's going on as somebody who has been able to travel the globe to just spend an extended amount of time in these very natural settings, but you are optimistic about things because, as you point out, and plenty of others have as well, we really are all related. Not only us with other animals, but us with all other plants as well. What led you to the belief that the human and natural world are one and the same? Was there any one moment or epiphany that you experienced that enlightened you on this? 
it was well <laughs> yes there was a moment back when i was uh uh probably eight years old when my father gave me a microscope and you know i was a pretty regular kid i was a ball player and and uh went out and gotten scraps and got in trouble <clears throat> but um i spent a lot of time staring through this microscope because when i first got it it says i oh, take a look and I got a drop of pond water and I got some dirt from the yard and I got some cat fur from the corner of the house. And I, you know, had that, oh, my God, experience that the first people with microscopes had uh, hundreds of years ago. Um, when Anton or Antony van Leeuwenhoek invented so-called the microscope um, and he drew the little creatures he saw, he sent them to the Royal Academy and they said, yeah, thanks for sharing your fantasies, Anton. Um, you just made this stuff up. You need to take a break and go do something else. And uh, um, I had no idea what a drop of pond water looked like. I didn't know it was full of life. I didn't know that everything I looked at was full of life and full of structure and full of beauty. And so, I learned this essential fact that most of life on the planet is invisible. And the one figure I use, and I suppose it is especially meaningful during the pandemic, um, is that an average of 800 million viruses land on each square yard of Earth every day. <laughs> well, okay. Um, there are more bacteria in a truckload or yard full of soil uh, by far than there are stars in the universe. I mean, this is a, when we talk about the living planet, most people think of uh, a wildlife special they saw on TV with beautiful birds singing in the trees, colorful creatures and tigers stalking through the woods and that sort of thing. No, everything's alive. The, where the fertility of the soil is not geology it's biology it was made it was created by a zillion microorganisms and that's part of the positivity of this is just once once you see the what you scale down and use your imagination <clears throat> when you when you come back up and look at the outer world um I just see it seething with, with life. That's what this planet is all about. That's what it excels at. That's what it may be the only one in the universe. And the fact that we are losing species at a rate not seen in millions of years, um, that hurts because that's, that's, and it hurts or it, it, it's just unacceptable because I, I'm, I'm related to all those creatures. I'm 8% of my DNA, of my genetic makeup is of viral origin, which, which means that over time, our ancestors, and it goes way back to fish and, and beyond, um, viruses carried particles from other species from from other relatives and inserted them in our dna we used to call it junk dna and we didn't know what it was for it turns out a lot of it is repurposed viral stuff i share seven percent i have identical genes with 
7% of them uh, with uh, bacteria. And the title of the book I wrote is Four-Fifths of Grizzly because I'm up to 80% plus uh, sharing genes with a grizzly bear. I'm up to 98% plus with chimpanzees. Um, so when I see, when I'm out there in the, uh, some remote corner of the planet and I'm watching snow leopards or I'm watching, uh, you know, gorillas in the Congo or whatever I'm doing, I'm eye to eye with some elephants or I'm diving with whales. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful experience in itself. And I'm not thinking, gee, we're, we're a lot alike, except they're looking at me in the eye. And if you've ever been eye to eye with chimps that haven't never seen humans before, which not many folks have, but you're looking into a mirror. And when a whale comes up and visits your little boat out there and extends for 30 feet on either side of the boat and it rolls over and you're eye to eye with that whale, it's come over to visit you. Hmm. I've had that happen with species after species. They're, they have a brain three to four times the size of ours. What? And they're curious. And that's me. That's part, we're, we're sharing that, the mental makeup, the physical makeup, you know, this is literally uh, brotherhood. Animals problem solve. Animals have senses of humor. Let's talk a little bit more about the Grizzlies, though. The title character in this beautiful book, beautifully written, beautifully laid out as well. You love to watch Grizzlies for three reasons. For one, to be on the wild land with which they roam. Secondly, because you're an adrenaline junkie. And third, the connection you feel to them when your fear melts away and you can just observe them as Grizzlies. You point out the similarities between humans and grizzly bears. What are some of the ways that we are alike, that magnificent and destructive creature? <laughs> well, destructive. Um, destructive yeah. when it wants to be, I guess, is a better way to put that. That's fair. Powerful. Powerful. Um, uh, it's nothing compared to us, of course, but... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, Look, grizzly, the thing, if you watch grizzlies for any period of time, uh, the, one of the things I point out, take people out to a meadow in the springtime, and uh, the expression I use was, it's like someone threw a cowhide over a, a Hereford cow. They're just grazing. Hmm. Um, and then when they're not grazing half the time, they're, they're entertaining themselves. They're exploring, they're fiddling with stuff, or they're just playing. And I noticed it with killer whales, uh, with, the, with the great apes, with, and, and certainly with bears. And, and I think the thing about grizzlies is, first of all, I live near a bunch of them. I raised two kids and, well, my wife and I raised two kids. Um, uh, in a remote cabin near Glacier Park, and we had grizzly bears for neighbors. And what I'm getting at is usually if you say grizzly, you've got people's attention, hmm. but they're automatically going to destructive, to long claws, big fangs, uh, something that can shred your, uh, shred your day. And that's, that's a potential they have, but it, it certainly... Um, it's outweighed 
by all the things they do that we would do if we were dominant in a in an area and didn't have anything else to worry about. We'd be playing, we'd be interacting, we'd be exploring things. And the fact that they are fearsome, that they are so much more powerful than us, and that they will, they can be aggressive. Um, I find that my attention is totally focused on them. And so I'm picking up all those subtle behaviors. I'm picking up those moments when you can literally see the bear making, it appears to be making decisions. And it's got a big brain to go with that big body, the highly intelligent. There are experiments showing bears solving problems. For example, uh, those in captivity will stack objects in the in the pen or the yard where they are together to build a platform so they can reach something up above them. And, you know, there's this forethought. Um, and, and that's the last thing most people imagine with the grizzly because they see it rampaging through the woods and, you know, uh, I don't know, swatting down moose or, or uh, roaring and growling like they do on TV, chasing pi little pioneer girls. That's what they live for. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, you, you, you see a creature that's so much more like us than you ever expected. And again, it's because they grab your attention and they hold it. And so I use the grizzly as an example of the fact that we share 80 plus percent of our genes with all these other mammals out there. And we stand to lose up to, well, the, there's a lot of estimates out there, but a third to more likely a half. And we certainly, of all the mammal species, all our fellow species, um, a third of the, of the, our closest kin, the primates, the monkeys, the great apes um, are imperiled and two-thirds are declining and this is us these are our these are our kin uh, literally it's easier for us to see it and what are we doing why uh, we're certainly smart enough to leave room for them and find ways to avoid this this kind of apocalyptic future uh, where we dominate the earth and uh, we're, all we're doing is looking at human habitations and not humans. Um, is that the goal? I don't know. But this gene sharing goes on and on and on. I'm I'm 20% a worm. I'm 18% baker's yeast. I'm 24% a wine grape. Your dog that uh, I have one in the next room, I share about 85% of my genes with that dog cows on the neighbor's field same thing i could run you know run down to the plant and animal world we've we've got 30 percent of our genes in common with a banana with uh <laughs> with rice um we are one put it that way to your point uh the next time you have a pint of beer or a glass of wine go ahead and hug that pint or glass because you are consuming a, a distant relative right doug well, I'm sharing the joy with a distant relative. There you How's go. that? People have been debating nature versus nurture for a long time now. I believe that both are important. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. 
And when I talked about optimism earlier, um, I think these, there's a tendency to, we still use expressions like, oh, that person's acting like an animal. Um, yeah, they're, they're dirty brutes. I mean, this is a holdover from centuries of, of demeaning other creatures because we see ourselves as separate from, and it seems very important for us to be superior to all other life. Like we've got a wall, there's humans, and then there's all the rest of nature, and we have some special category. Well, we are special in our creative intelligence, but more and more science shows us sharing those quali certain qualities with animals. And in fact, I, I read a lot of scientific papers, and the, I notice the expression, a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans, keeps appearing in more and more articles as we look at animals in fresh ways. Um, so I think that barrier is become a, the, seeing ourselves separate from nature and seeing ourselves as unique has become an obstacle to our future. And our future is looking, I think, very uncomfortable between, you know, the changes we're, we're creating on the earth with, in the in the atmosphere, in the seas, and on the land. But if we can break down that barrier, then I see a sense of belonging, a, a sense of meaning. I mean, we're getting at the big questions we always ask: Who are we? Where are we going? What what is what's the meaning of being human? What's what does it mean to be alive? There are answers out there, and. They would include, am I rambling on a bit much here? I mean, I should let you, you've been asking great questions, but. No, not at all. Please. I mean, I'm asking questions because I want to hear you, your full answers on these things. Well, the full answer would be, you know, I've been talking about, uh, let's say I'm, I'm in the Himalayas and I'm looking at, there are grizzly bears in the Himalayas, by the way, there are grizzly bears in the Gobi Desert, and I've seen them in both places. But. There's also these connections with other animals. If I'm watching wild camels, if I'm watching antelope, um, we all do things the same way. We all, our genes are operating so that, and our, and our behavior is operating in similar ways. But going back to the microscope days, going back to recent scientific discoveries, I'm also very aware that I have about 30 trillion human cells in my body, and I have at least that many microbial cells. And that would be bacteria, there's a group called archaea. I don't wanna to get too geeky here, but <laughs> uh, very similar to bacteria, but well, they're actually our, our well, ancestors. Well, people have heard of the gut microbiome. That's the maybe the most popular example of these. Yeah, and, and people have heard of probiotics and, and we're, we're increasingly recognizing that. And there's increasingly talk that it affects not only our health, this partnership we have with thousands of different species, but that it can influence our moods and our behavior. So we are host to, you know, this teeming uh, microbiome 
it's on our skin as well as inside our guts, in our mouths, and all our damp places. You know, not not to get specific here, but <laughs> we got a load of them, <laughs> and <laughs> um, and they are putting out chemicals similar to dopamine and serotonin and all these things that affect our mood and our behavior. So I think there's a huge frontier there. But the more important question is the DNA in and on my body is partly human, but 99% of it of the DNA, if you were to analyze, you know, put everything in and on me in a mass spectroscope, uh, it would be mostly microbial. And so the question is, uh, are we an individual, really, the way we think of ourselves? And can we be separate from nature? I mean, it, it just looks like we're not, no matter what. I mean, if you're living in a bubble, a literal bubble, because you have no immunity whatsoever, you know, the special cases of the bubble boy, they called it, or the, you know, a person in a, in a plastic tent. Um, yes, you can live without these creatures, but you can't live without uh, artificial environment. And then inside each of our human cells are these little organelles called mitochondria. And I think some people know about them, some don't, but uh, they are the, the battery, the living batteries. They're the um, energy sources for everything that happens. They power the cells. They power our metabolism. Uh, they make us able to move, think, feel, everything. Um, we have some in, uh, say, skin cells. But in other cells that are doing really active work, like in the liver, we have up to 2,000 of them. They are modified bacteria, ancient modified bacteria. Plants have them. Uh, jellyfish have them. Bacteria. Everything above the level of bacteria is powered by these modified bacteria. We all have that in common, every living thing. And in addition, plants have modified cyanobacteria, which were actually the first creatures to photosynthesize. They, start, they invented it about 2 billion years ago. They started filling the air we breathe with oxygen. Bacteria did that work. Well, those cyanobacteria became captured by a larger single-celled creature and became the chloroplast. It this photosynthesis creating food from sunlight was captured by a larger creature. They, they went on to become algae, become larger plants, to fill the world with green and the whole food chain we all depend on. That, along with mitochondria and the chloroplasts, every creature out there is a partner with other creatures. And this is a, to me, this, this has been known for several decades, but it hasn't made its way out into the public that our whole idea of separating nature into individual organisms is leading us down. It sort of reinforces our own opinion that we are separate and special, but it's not the reality of existence. Um, if I look at a plant, 
I'm also imagining the root system. Most of the, at least half the plant is underground. And those root systems are always in 90% of, uh, at least so far, 90% um, of those plants are tied, their root systems are tied to uh, mycorrhizal fungi, which extend the reach of that plant by an order of magnitude, by 10 times at least, and bring nutrients and water from a much greater area. That's how plants survive in all the places they do. So that plant has a fungal partner. It has a bacterial cyanobacteria partner doing the photosynthesis. It's coated with other microbes that are doing all kinds of things like repelling uh, molds or repelling nematodes that eat the roots, doing other kinds of work. It's a community. Each plant is kind of a mini ecosystem. And I'd argue that humans are as well. And every animal you look at. So it's time after, after breaking nature down into individual parts, the better to organize and understand what nature is like. We have to start putting creatures back together as what are symbiotic relationships they're called, or as holobionts, which is a bunch of symbionts living together. That's what makes an organism. And again, where's the individual in all this? I have trouble finding one. Most of us have heard a relationship as being defined as symbiotic, but biologically speaking, what is symbiosis and how does it take shape in the stomachs of ruminants? Or our stomachs. <laughs> we can't digest cellulose. We have critters in our guts that do that. The cows that are out there eating cellulose all day, grazing in the pasture, um, have a four-chambered stomach that is basically a fermentation vat and an environment, an ecosystem that encourages the growth of all these other creatures, the microbes that can digest cellulose, that can turn raw material from plants into vitamins, into fatty acids, into all the nutrients that animal needs. So the cow, the deer, the, uh, what, the zebra, the, well, let's not use, zebras have a slightly different system, but they're all using microbes to extract the nutrients they need. Um, and a ruminant is, by definition, an animal with four chambered stomachs that rechews the food, gives it a second microbial munching. It goes through all this long, long process that is it's a study of ecosystems, one after another in a chain that finally leads to going out the other end. And then that's all munched by, you know, dung beetles and other mic you know insects microbes that have their own flora in their own gut that are doing the munching and so the microbes are doing the work and they're doing the work transforming what we call dirt into soil soil is so alive there's more critters in there than there are you know just inorganic stuff but they've taken an inorganic planet, wheeling through the universe and turned it into this live system. 
And we're microcosms of that. Every living creature is a microcosm of that. How does it play out in hyenas advertising their sexual and reproductive readiness? Yeah, uh, you read that book carefully. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> um, well, there are bacteria that produce the scent um, in their anal glands. I mean, there's, you know, people complain about the smell of a, of a hyena um, or the smell of a wolverine or other creatures. Well, that's bacteria doing the work and it's advertising sexual status and uh, probably social dominance too. It's messaging. So animals use bacteria for messaging in a lot of ways. And we probably do too. Um, ever heard of an armpit? <laughs> ever heard of... <laughs> Ever heard of uh, uh, women synchronizing their menstrual cycles when they live together in dorms? Yep. Bacteria are part of that. And if I'm looking at, look. Oh, that's interesting. That's a bacterial process. I've never heard a scientific explanation for that. Well, what I'm trying to think of a way to, you know, symbiosis is a, um, the biggest challenge in writing this book, Trey, was, was, talking about uh, what most people would think of as geek science um, in a way that they won't stop turning the page, you know, and go, wait a minute, this is, I, I didn't sign on to get a technical review of, of uh, geeky stuff here. Um, but to me, it's just, it's fascinating. And again, it opens up the world and it makes us part of these systems that operate with all life. And, if if you everybody knows about a lichen you know the it's an algae and a fungus mm -hmm. they used to just call it a plant and identify it as such and they realized once microscopes got better wait a minute it's, this is a dual organism well you could say the same thing about corals you know the the coral is a polyp like an anemone but it sells host algae and algae do the work of photosynthesis that gives the coral its energy that's how coral reefs get built around the world um termites we i think a lot of people know they don't actually digest eat the wood they break down the wood send it to their gut and protozoans single-celled animals convert it to food and that's not exactly right it's bacteria on the cell walls of the protozoans that provide the digestive enzymes that convert wood to termite food. Well, who cares about termites other than the fact that they eat your house? Well, <clears throat> the fertility of, of a lot of the world in the tropical areas is due to termites. Um, a tropical rainforest, the ants and termites outweigh all the big animals in it. An African savanna, same story. And they are recycling all the organics and creating new richness throughout that ecosystem. That's how you get, you know, elephants and giraffes and lions and the big things we love at the densities you see out there on an African savanna. Without these other crit critters, and without those critters, microbes at work, you don't have the richness of, an, of a rainforest or an African savanna 
not even close. I don't know if that if that just works for me or if I'm getting it across in a way that you know, it's like saying we are one with nature, no matter what you think. I think that at times, just this is me speaking as a layman, at times you probably do go over some people's heads, and I'm fully willing to admit that uh, this book goes over my head at times, but there are plenty of other points that were made crystal clear. For instance, you talk about your experience in Africa, and I'm among those that you mention in this book who think of sub-Saharan Africa as this wide-open, natural expanse, really devoid of people. But is this part of the world dealing with population density issues too, Doug? Well, the parts of Africa have way more people per square mile than uh, any place we can find in North America. And a couple of countries in Africa have population densities that rival those in India. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a comfortable illusion we like to have and it's the tv special syndrome where whenever we see africa we see beautiful creatures they are entertaining we love them uh, we have t-shirts with gorillas and giraffes on them and all that but the african most of the people in most of africa have to go out uh and uh, when they want to go see animals they they're going to have to go to a zoo or they're going to have to go to the nearest park and i work with a uh, uh, to bring this back to a little more practical level, um, it's one thing to write about it and talk about it. It's another to, to actually try to do something. And I'm on a, the board of the Liz Claiborne Art Ortenberg Foundation, and we support community-based work in Africa that and elsewhere around the world, but that allows people to support wildlife, but also benefit from having it in the area, either through tourism, through better grazing practices that if, if the wildebeest and zebras and antelope in, in Africa on the plains can find forage, so can people's cows if you do this, you know, in a sustainable way. And if you get rid of all the wildlife and put on more cows, then the place turns to it's on its march towards being a desert, hmm. overgrazed, and fewer people can make a living there. So they're trying to find ways to integrate human use with that of wildlife. But let's say you go, I, I was lucky to go uh, a couple of different times into the sort of the headwaters of the Congo. And I, I felt like, uh, boy, um, there were times when I felt like uh, Kurt's going into the heart of darkness. You know, is I didn't know where I was. I'm in a little dugout canoe. I'm going by uh, on a muddy river. You know, with a load of a load of malaria pills with me <laughs> to meet some guys somewhere in the jungle up ahead, and on the riverbank are bushmeat stands with. Uh, paws and heads of gorillas and chimpanzees dangling from them so you can go buy yourself a little bit of meat um and i i just i had no idea where i was and finally get into the bush and hold on hold on a second did you actually eat gorilla meat 
No. Okay. No, I, I don't. Um, I sure could have. If I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is a very popular item, but one of the first things to go are our nearest relatives. When you put a logging road into a primeval uh, lowland tropical rainforest, um, bushmeat is considered a delicacy. They even export it from Africa to uh, people living in Europe and elsewhere. But it's the chimps, it's the gorillas, um, it's, you know, the monkeys. And, but having said that, I'm in deepest, darkest Africa. I'm kind of living this, this grade B movie fantasy of, of a jungle where I can't see more than 15 feet. I got pygmies as, as guides and porters to go where I'm going once I get off the boat. But I can't find elephants in some places. They've all been poached out. I can't, forest elephants have been reduced by something like 80 to 90% in most of these really remote places because there's no law. There's no way to patrol these kinds of areas. And ivory is still worth, uh, you know, a couple of tusks can, uh, you know, be worth part of a year's wages for, for people. And there are syndicates who are taking advantage of this. So, I'm getting back to it. It doesn't necessarily take a huge density of people to change the fact that wildlife is becoming extremely scarce across the large swaths of Africa. Since you just mentioned elephants, they are known as a keystone species. What are keystone species and just how do elephants influence their habitat in such a profound manner? A keystone species is a, a creature that has an impact on its environment that is sort of an outsized impact in that it affects a whole array of other species throughout the food chain. Elephants up to 12,000 pounds, uh, they can eat 400 plus pounds of food a day. And so they will transform a woodland into a savanna. And they do this by breaking down branches, by pushing over trees, by eating the woody plants. And that encourages the growth of open country plants. Conversely, where elephants start to disappear, woody shrubs can take over the savanna. And then you're, they're subject to, for, to fires. There's, but a whole suite of species that depends on the forest no longer can flourish. And a whole lot of savanna species are able to exist where elephants are keeping the forest or the woody shrubs in check. In addition to that, they're dumping elephant fertilizer <laughs> throughout the area. And the dung beetles are transforming that into rich organic compost. <laughs> and Elephants also will girdle trees. I mean, even huge trees, um, you say, I, I, that an elephant can't push over, they will strip the bark from and kill the tree by girdling it. And, and so they are keystone species that makes room or when they're missing, um, puts a number of other species out of business or in business, depending on, on the balance of savanna and forest. And take elephants out of the system. Also, 
there's some, you know what a mango is like, right? With that huge seed. Yep. yep. It's, it takes an elephant or a gorilla to pass that seed through its system. Um, there aren't many animals that can do it and then plant it in a nice fertile pile of dung and, um, and you know, allow it to flourish. So they're seed dispersers. A, a lot of animals are seed dispersers of various size, but take them out of the system. They go missing and then all of a sudden the composition of the rainforest or the savanna or the bush uh, country it, it it changes and not many people notice it at first it takes an ecologist to go in and say there's something wrong here well it's because this species is missing you just reminded me that a couple years ago the world's most expensive coffee was coffee that was found in elephant dung i guess they had eaten the coffee beans and digested it and it comes out the other side and it's supposed to make a delicious cup of coffee doug uh, i've tried i've tried eating seeds out of elephant dung, which a lot of other animals do. How'd that go? I see a scowling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very tasty. Um, I mean, it's, you know, fresh elephant dung is kind of like sour hay. It's not awful. They're not meat eaters. Um, and I, I noticed the hornbills and the baboons picking through it and getting nuts. And the scientist I was with uh, said, you should give it a try. And, and I, why not? Um, but I've also had, have you ever had civet coffee? No, what's that? Well, I forget the name of it, but it's, these are beans that have passed through the digestive system of a civet, which is like a, a civet cat is kind of related to mongoose and, and other creatures, um, Southeast Asia. And uh, when it passes through the digestive system, it's supposed to get this special tang and uh they collect the coffee beans that have done that and it's uh you pay a fortune for it and um i, I have no idea it's the caviar of of uh, <laughs> of coffee beans but it's, it's good it's good i i think it's just uh it's good marketing put it that way no doubt about that shifting gears just a little bit why do scientists think of certain social insect colonies as super organisms well this gets back to talking about what is an individual. So let's go back to, I'm looking at um, my aspen grove out the window um, and I see, you know, hundreds of trees. That may be one or two trees with runners that go out to the side and then from those runners, another tree comes up. So, huh. so they're, cl they're clones, okay? If you have strawberries, you you notice little red runners going out from the plants, and then when it hits the dirt at a certain spot, a new one will spring up. That's a clone. There are a lot of female organisms that can reproduce themselves. Uh, lizards, scorpions, certain fish, they don't need a male to fertilize the egg. Um, so they're cloning themselves. Now, slightly different in a lot of the social insects, where the queen produces endless numbers of, through her life, of female, sterile female workers. And so if you look at an ant colony uh, or 
the one they're biting you <laughs> because you sat down in the wrong place for your picnic, those are f female soldiers. They're the Amazon warriors. Um, they don't breed, but they defend the territory. They feed the queen. Some of them will be out uh, just simply collecting food, bringing it back to the colony. Uh, in some cases, they bring back food and then plant it with a fungus, kind of like we would plant corn in a field, and then they harvest the fungus to eat. They tend these fungus gardens, so they're doing agriculture. Others are herding livestock. They've got aphids or scale insects that they milk. We call it milking. Um, they're eating secretions from these animals, uh, these other insects, or taking it back to the hive to feed the larva, feed the queen. So there are all these things going on in an ant society by, you know, drone-like members of the colony. But it's the colony itself that succeeds or doesn't succeed and competes with other colonies. You know, giant wars between different ant colonies. But the individual in all this is part of a much larger organism. And that's why they it's called a superorganism. They they have methods of communication. No one can figure out how an ant brain is not that big, obviously. And and yet if you look at the or and same with termites, if you look at the organization of the hive, no one can figure out exactly how all this works. How is this being communicated? Where are the bureaucrats that are in charge of making the roots and the tunnels and who does what today and who's who's farming who's who's tending uh livestock who's doing defense somehow it all works and it's been studied by urban planners who are trying to figure out the most efficient ways to dispose of waste or transport goods because it's such an efficient system and I think that plays into that super colony term because it's very, very impressive. And we're trying to mimic it to be more efficient ourselves. Crows and ravens are really good problem solvers as well as being very innovative creatures. Based on that, why did you title Chapter 12 Crowboarding? <laughs> because crows... They're a member of what's called the corvid family, and that includes ravens, magpies, and jays. And some people may have heard that jays are able to cache, they, they collect seeds from pines, and they will store them in as many as a thousand different places. And then they will remember where all those places are later when they need the food. Um, and most of us are kind of searching for our remote or our car keys, right? We can't remember where we put those. Um, ravens love to play. Just watch them for half an hour. And, and they're, you know, we have, the, again, this idea that humans are special creatures. Animals are driven totally by uh, hunger, you know, food, sex competition and that's it they're instinct driven they're kind of um automatized um and and yet 
watch a crow, watch a raven, and they're they're thinking creatures. Their brains are different, but they're very creative. And and crowboarding was simply a play on someone invented that word after a video made the uh, circuit on um, YouTube and other channels of a crow that found a, the lid of a can, carried it up to the top of a snowy roof, and jumped onto the lid and went snowboarding down the the roof <laughs> and then picked up the lid, carried it to the top and did it again and again. Um, I've seen grizzly bears, you know, back to, back to my favorite critters. Um, mother bears put her nursing babies on her chest, lie on her back, point her head downhill and go sledding down a snowfield. Then grab the cubs or they follow scramble after her go back up to the top and do it again <laughs> so this is your rampaging monster grizzly out there sledding you know on a hot afternoon on a snowbank in glacier park um crowboarding uh ravens do the same thing they they will get on the top of a hill and and uh slide down on their back down through the snow Sometimes they're cleaning off their feathers, maybe if they've been feeding on something, but sometimes they're obviously just doing it because they love it. And mountain goats and elk, I've seen both of them hit snow fields and they do just what we do. We, they go glissading. They take a run and then hold their feet stiff and slide down the rest of the snowbank. And then they'll go up and they'll do it again. Or they'll start dancing around and whirling and, and um, you know, the question I would ask is why would why are we always surprised that animals do stuff like this? And if, if that brings up the question is how do we think of them? And we think of them as dull-witted compared to us. And we think of them, they don't have a capacity for for that kind of joy and fun. I think everyone who has a dog knows differently. But um, we, the the raven's still trying to recover from Edgar Allan Poe, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, be out there being gloomy and foreboding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I see it in all kinds of creatures. And, and uh, I was just watching, a, I'd been down doing some work with people with uh, uh, kit foxes in the San Joaquin area in California. And, and it, you know, I've seen young foxes playing uh and their level of play is so fast and spectacular. Um, but this this was a litter of 12 pups. And it was, oh, you know, it was Academy Award stuff, this video he sent me. It was 12 fox kits all leaping over each other and, you know, not just playing tag, but really inventive games and in and out of holes and hide and seek and... Um, there's a joy in, in in this that I don't know how to explain it. it. Just, but why not? Why would we expect differently? Love to see animals playing out in nature. It's good for us to get out in nature too, Doug. I mean, it is physically, mentally, physiologically good for us to spend time in nature. Science has proven that over and over again. And it's also really good for our immune systems as well to get out there and get a little bit dirty, as you put it in this book. Considering that getting out there and exposing ourselves to germs is so good for us, 
Do you worry that the COVID precautions that many have been partaking in over the last 15 months, essentially shutting themselves inside, is potentially and perhaps ironically leaving us more prone to disease? Well, you know, those COVID precautions were aimed at urban people. In the year 1800, I think about 3% of the world population was urban. In 12,000 BC, 0% of the Homo sapiens on the planet were urban. It's now about 50 to 60% urban. I don't think anyone, well, as we all know, there were a lot of different statements coming out of different agencies, but I don't think anyone after a while was opposed to getting out in nature with COVID precautions. I mean, if, in fact, you're better off outdoors became the, the message. Yeah, it was it was frustrating because that was very obvious, I think, by late last summer. But the CDC was so slow to actually let people know that. They didn't let people know that until like six months later. I know. I know. And I hope you're not going to ask me how bureaucracies work. <laughs> and we, we are, we're, we're confronted with a novel threat. And I'm more interested in what it tells us about how we're living. How smart is it to be? The prediction is that 75% of the global population will be urban within a couple of decades. So people piled on top of other people. And in many parts of the world, people piled on top of other people on top of amazing amounts of livestock, of fowl and pigs and cattle and so on. This is this is a virus's dream. We are giving the viruses untold opportunities to experiment on us, to see how they can be transmitted from one person to another. Um, the cure for that, I think, is to reconsider what we call progress. And if progress is becoming more and more concentrated um, and spending more and more time indoors, the statistics from that I've seen from reliable agencies are the average American spends 87% of his or her time indoors. And in, you know, an enclosed space. Um, and an additional 6% inside closed transportation, that would be your car or bus or whatever you're commuting in. Um, so that works out to 93% of your life, um, not in contact with nature, but also in a, in a shell of your own making. And I don't see how this is progress. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from, you know, the, the stimulating and creative and, and exciting parts of urban life and cities. I don't want to make it an either or thing, but this isn't me, uh, you know, being an ecologist. It's doctors increasingly recommending time outdoors for people. And it becomes so much more imperative for people that live in urban settings as well to carve out even 30 minutes, two, three, four times a week to go find a park, 
Go find some place in nature where you can just unplug your brain from the constant distraction that is the world around you. Yes. And and I do have a, a, a focus on for what's called forest bathing. Yes. Um, and that... For, for, pe- thank- for, for people who are unaware, what is forest bathing? Well, it's a bit of a tricky term. We have, I, I'd rather almost say just go outside. But forest bathing is a Japanese tradition. And it means immersing all your senses in the outdoors. Uh, the feel and touch and smell. Just the presence of, of live you know, preferably big old trees, but it can, it can be a flower garden. It can be a, a little tiny urban park. It's just being in touch with nature. And what's really interesting to me is that some of the effects I'll mention in just a minute also come from no more than uh, looking at pictures of the outdoors hmm. um, or smelling certain uh certain plants especially the conifers um you get these physiological reactions so what happens when you go outdoors just go outside is your blood pressure decreases your heart rate slows your immune system gets bolstered the metabolism activity and number of natural killer cells and other defenses you have um, increases. There's just good things happen. And you, you mentioned, Trey, the, your mental concentration goes from uh, uh, this intense and stressful sort of uh, uh, mental, this mindset to a relaxed awareness. It goes from literally walking around with having to pay close enough attention because things are so life and death around you, whether it's cars or other people walking around the sidewalk and you have the, you know, the bright lights of the city advertisements and things like that grabbing your attention as well. It's it really does feel way too life or death for what you should be dealing with from a a minute to minute basis in your daily life. Right. I mean, that balance is between the fight or flight system as it's called, and we're wired for that for good reason. Throughout not just our human history, but our ancestors had the same needs. But what's happening is you're full of adrenaline and you're full of cortisol. These are the stress hormones. And they are very useful. You need them. And historically, we've always needed them. But the other opposite side is the rest and relaxation mode, which kicks in when you are outdoors, uh, assuming there isn't a, a rhino coming your way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then all the good things happen. The stress hormones are replaced by, by the easygoing sort of mindset, and your cognitive abilities actually increase. And But mostly you're it's the balance between them that's out of whack. I mean, they're both useful. That's why we have this this dichotomy. But right now, if you're living in an urban situation, you don't give yourself a break. Uh, I think there's a link between that and the fact that about a third of Americans are suffering from anxiety and depression. And I don't go into it too much because God knows how many factors 
play into it. Yeah. But but the simple fact is that they can measure the benefits of forest, let's call it forest bathing or just being outdoors uh, in terms of the health of the subjects that are studied in terms of their longevity. And it can be, as you say, just from as few as, uh, you know, half hour session every other day or something, or just strolling around outside or just picnicking. Um, they're dual benefits. Um, exercise gives you many of the same positive benefits for uh, your health as forest bathing does. But you can just sit stationary on a bench out in a spot and all those things will kick in. So why not do both exercise and do it outdoors? And I believe you said petting an animal also has a similar effect too, correct? Yep. The endorphins kick in, the stress level goes down, the heartbeat slows, et cetera, et cetera. So again, this is how we're linked to nature because of, it's not us thinking our way through it. It's how we're built. And we were built by generations of natural selection. This is what worked. And so our job isn't to say, well, let's not have cities. Let's not do the urban stuff. That's all. I mean, it's great, but it has to be balanced out. And, and that means making more little neighborhood parks making it easier for people to just get out and and be in a green space. That's not hard at all to plan. Um, We're just not thinking that way. We're thinking instead of how much more uh, concentrated and developed we can make most landscapes. And I think that's uh, not doing our health any favors. And I think what will really get people's attention are the studies that show longevity increases in neighborhoods, this is from the United Kingdom, I believe, um, with people that have a minimum of time outdoors. And also people have a few more trees in their neighborhood than mm-hmm. other neighborhoods. You can you can pick up the differences in health and longevity from very minor uh, increases in contact with nature. That's interesting. My neighborhood requires two trees in the front and two trees in the back, at least. And I now appreciate that a little bit more. Well, you're looking good. And and I think uh, your health is, you're probably going to live to a ripe old age, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. So the question becomes, Doug, what can we do to make a positive individual impact on all other living organisms. Going out in nature is good for us, and perhaps it helps in a very secondary manner, uh, the nature that we're in. But what else can we do as individuals? Well, I'd say first make the changes you can make in yourself and in your lifestyle. And more time in nature just, it's not only for the healthful effects, but you're watching things and you're learning. And open yourself to those. And the more you look, the more you find. And that goes back to, you can do it through a microscope. You can do it by a hike, you know, in rugged, remote country that just stuns you with this beauty and, and, and wildness, or you can pick anything in between, but do it outdoors. And then the next thing is to work towards, how do I put it? Uh, 
seeing the connections between yourself and all other life. Now, look, you, you, in South Korea and Japan, if you have health insurance, your insurance company will actually pay you or charge you less if you are forest bathing hmm. because it's that good for your health. That's less, less of a cost to them down the road. Um, we do that with exercise here, but I would love to see that with getting out in nature too. Yeah, and again, doctors are increasingly recommending time in nature for people. It's so simple, it, it almost goes right past us, our attention. Why? It would be, to me, the first thing to think about because I feel that way the minute I'm out on a, on a walk in the woods. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so I can't tell you how to, how to strengthen that feeling in other people. I think it's natural and it will happen, but you have to open yourself to it. But look, if there's one thing to say, it's get over yourself. Hmm. You're, you're not what you think you are. You're not who you think you are. You're a we. Now, you don't have to start introducing yourself as we. But, <laughs> um, but recognize that you are a collection of of genes and microbes, and all of them have connect you know other connections to the rest of the living world. And we're not special. We can't live insulated from nature. It's working against us. We're in the process of denaturing the planet with unprecedented numbers of people and changing the air, the seas, and the land. And if we keep going down this road, it's going to be very, very uncomfortable. And it may be totally disastrous, but I don't want to say the sky is falling. I just think the quality of life is headed down. Longevity has actually decreased in many countries recently. And that's from everything from alcoholism and opioid addiction, obesity, but largely stress and anxiety. We're creating less comfortable environments for ourselves and continuing to call it progress because a lot of people are making money off it, I guess. I don't, I'm not quite sure. But we have this mindset that this is good. This is the road we should go on. The road we should go on is to celebrate being alive on a planet that is full of life. And the fact that this doesn't diminish us, it doesn't make us less to say, oh, we're not who we think we are. We're not great, unique, very special creations. We're tied into all the others. It makes us greater. It makes us more than just human. It makes, I call it our greater selves because I am all those things out there. And that's not woo-woo philosophy. That's just literally what science is saying. And connect, I'd say connections, connections, connections. Everything is connected to everything else in a natural system. We're connected to everything else in a natural system. We need to understand more about those connections and use them to create a higher quality of life for ourselves. In terms of conservation, it means connecting the parks and preserves we have fashioned over time to one another so that animals can adjust to changing climates and changing conditions, forest fires, whatever happens in a homeland, they can move and adapt. That's what they've always done. That's how we all came to be.
is having that flexibility, that freedom to roam. So we've done a fair job in many places of, we call it saving nature, but what we need to realize is we haven't saved nature yet. We have saved islands of nature. Islands are vulnerable. If we can connect those islands, and it doesn't mean making great swaths of wildland reserves, it means corridors, bridges, habitat bridges, uh, wildways between them. So these animals can move, and plants can move, migrate, adjust, adapt. And if we can do that and keep it going and create more green spaces and just outdoor places for for folks of all kinds, whether they're urban or suburban or whatever they are. Um, this is all within our power and it doesn't involve massive changes of society. Then I think we're headed down a, a much more uh, hopeful road in the future because the question all of us are asking ourselves every day, or at least a lot of us are asking is you read the newspaper and what's happening to different areas. And, you know, it's, it's pretty dismal from the environmental standpoint, and we don't need to be doing that. We, this is, I mean, all of us say, what can, I'm just one of 8 billion, almost 8 billion people now. What can one person do to change this? Well, use your imagination, use all your, your whatever abilities you have. It may be through social media. It may be through, uh, you know, just local civic actions. Let's make another park, a little park. Let's give the kids some green spaces to get out in X number of minutes per day. Was, come on, this isn't hard. I think that's a perfect way to end a wonderful conversation today. He is Douglas Chadwick, a wildlife biologist, journalist, and best-selling author. His newest book is titled Four-Fifths a Grizzly, A New Perspective on Nature That Just Might Save Us All. Doug, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this beautiful book. Trey, thank you. You read it carefully, and you asked really good questions, and I'm probably struggling with some, already, which is a good sign. I'm forever on a search to find better ways of expressing what we need to do, because I think the answers are actually pretty simple. It's just how we see ourselves and how we connect. And we all know that connecting with people is so important in life. Now we need to expand those connections to more creatures around us right. and to the earth we walk on. I think it starts by having conversations like this. I think it does too. And I really thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure, Doug. Take care. You too. Thanks, Trey. Join me next time on Books on Pod when we resume our No Books Required series with one of my favorite people to speak with, Mississippi State head football coach Mike Leach, a guy that I think of as the Bill Murray of college football. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.